Well, I encourage you to uh, turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 13 through 17, right in the middle of that chapter. Now, just a reminder uh, of what we've already seen in this letter from Peter. The first chapter and a half talk about who we are. Who are we in Christ? What did the Lord do to redeem us and draw us together and make us His own? What does that mean in terms of our identity before the world? And then we looked at the beginning of what does that mean in terms of our life? And there was a focus starting in verse 11 of chapter 2, continuing through our text last week, um, of how we're to live lives that are honorable, particularly in the way that we relate to those around us and those over us. Well, now, now we're going to shift gears just a little bit and talk a bit more broadly about how we behave. Uh, not just in our, our personal interactions, our personal relationships, but more broadly. And so the Apostle writes now, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Amen. Beloved sons and daughters of God in Christ, I have to admit, most of the times I have dealt with this text, I have focused almost exclusively on verse 15, all but ignoring the verses on either side. In fact, one of the commentaries that I use to um, check my exegesis, my interpretation, um, written by a very prominent uh, Reformed minister and scholar, does the same thing, all but ignores the verses on either side. And that's understandable because verse 15 really stands at the heart of this text. And it's providential that it falls today um, when we're beginning our catechism in Sunday school. Because that text talks about our calling to confess what we believe and to do so boldly and, and understandingly. But that verse was given in a very important context. A context that allows that verse to make, make sense and to live within the life of God's people. For the last few sermons from 1 Peter, we've talked about how we are to live in our relationships with others. How are we to relate to the authorities over us, the, uh, the people for whom we work, the spouses with whom we live. And indeed, all the people whom God sets before us. We're to live in a way that cultivates an attitude of blessing and overflows in deeds of blessing to those around us. So that looking at us, people will recognize that we're different. Thing is, not everyone will appreciate that kind of behavior, those kinds of attitudes. Paul knew that, or Peter knew that well. Although persecution, when he wrote this letter, probably wasn't terribly widespread. He knew it was coming. And so he began to prepare the church 
through the text before us today and the ones that follow. And it's a preparation that we need also because in our own land, opposition to Christ is growing and it's likely to get worse. So we need to be prepared. We need to be equipped to handle that opposition. And that equipping, that preparation, it comes primarily in keeping our hearts and our minds focused on the Lord. Focused on who He is, on what He's done, and how we're to respond to the people around us, even the people who oppose us, by pointing to Him. But it starts with our own hearts. It starts with our own minds, our own attitudes. A hostile world requires of God's people a life that is focused on Christ. That's what we see in, this, in the whole of this text. Not just verse 15, but, but 13 through 17. A hostile world requires of God's people a life that is focused on Christ. And a life that's focused on Christ is a life, first of all, of imitating Christ regardless of the cost. The first phrase of our text could easily be misunderstood. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? At first glance, that seems like a simple logical statement. Like Peter's saying, well, you know, if you do good, nobody's really going to harm you. And in many cases, that's true. In many cases, if you do what is good, if you do what is right, people won't be overly offended by you, won't push back against you terribly much. Matter of fact, most of them won't even notice. And, and those who do, they might find it commendable. They might want to follow your example. However, if we look at this in context, that's not exactly what he's aiming at. Remember, he has just urged us to desire and to do what is righteous, what delights God. And the apostle assured us that God sets himself against those who do evil, but he hears the prayer of those who strive to do good. God loves those whose lives reveal their love for and their faith in him. And now he says, if that's what characterizes your life, who can harm you? In other words, he's reminding you that no matter what their response, no matter how the unbeliever answers your striving after righteousness, your honorable behavior, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if they hate you. It doesn't matter if they slander you. It doesn't matter if they twist your good deeds into something that, is, that looks ugly. God sees. God knows the truth and God hears your prayer for deliverance. So let them do what they will do. God is on your side. Therefore, you have no need to fear them. What confidence that brings us. So that means that there is comfort, there is confidence in following after what is good. Not because our doing good somehow makes us right with God. It doesn't. But because when we do good, we, we see the fruit of, of true faith. And that reminds us that God is with us. That we're at peace with God. That we can count on Him being there for us. The New Testament is replete. The Old Testament, the whole Bible is replete with calls to do good. Again, not that we might earn anything by it, but that we might show the truth of our faith. For instance, in 3 John 11, he says, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does what is good is from God. And whoever does what is evil has not seen God. Right? And 
in Ephesians 5. He says, be imitators of God as beloved children. So seeking after and and being zealous for what is good, that should be part and parcel of what it means to live a Christian life. And we need to strive to do that. Follow after what is good. How do you do that, young people? In part, you do that by finding others who are doing good, finding those who are more mature in the faith and following them. Right? Look to the older men of the church. Look to the Christian men in your family and ask, how do they handle conflict? How do they raise up their families? How do they, how do they show their faith at work? How do they stand out among their co-workers? You need to, you need to find those godly men, those godly women, and follow after them, young women. Find the older women in church that you can look up to and spend time with them. Ask them if you can go out to coffee together. Ask them if you can help them with some of the chores that they work on. Young men, find some of the men in this church that are older than you and that share your interests or or share your work. And spend time with them. Seek to see how they live out their faith. Of course, you who are more mature, that means there's a weight on you. They're watching, they're looking. May we be good examples to them. May we teach them those lessons. And at the same time, we need to be seeking opportunities to do good. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? We need to be zealous for what is good. That means that that we need to take the initiative. That That might mean asking folks around you at church how they serve. It might mean evaluating your gifts and praying that God would open a door to use those gifts in a particular way. It might mean uh, looking at, at the people around you and asking, what needs do my neighbors have? What needs do my coworkers or my family members have that I might be able to meet in the name of Christ? But if you would be zealous for good, then you need to do the legwork. You need to take that initiative. And if you do, it has to be said... If you are zealous for what is good, it it might cost you. We live in a sin-filled world, a place where bad things happen to those who seek to do good, a place where all of us can expect to endure some suffering. In fact, sometimes it's the desire to do good that prompts the bad things that happen to us. Folks see in us a reminder of what they should be doing and aren't, and that annoys them. Or they see in us a reflection of our righteous God and they recall that they one day must face Him. They want that example gone or they want to attack the one that they see in you. Sometimes it's our very pursuit of what is good that leads to persecution and that's hard. It's hard to suffer for doing what is good. It feels unjust because it is. Our inclination is to attack the one who's attacking us but instead we are called all the more to do good to them. Trusting God to judge the ones who attack us. Allowing Him to sustain us and and showing them His love, His mercy. After all, Peter reminds us, even, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. You will be blessed in at least three ways. 
If you suffer for doing what is right, for doing what is good, you will be blessed with the opportunity to show to the world your devotion to the Lord. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. When we willingly accept suffering for the sake of Christ, we show that it is not comfort or ease that defines us. That we're not doing what we're doing to get a pat on the back and a nice little attaboy. But instead we're seeking to serve the Lord. We're, we're seeking to honor the Lord not ourselves. We're striving to glorify Him, not to glorify our name. So when we're persecuted, when we suffer for doing what is good, we get to honor Him all the more, and we get to see His work within us. Earlier in Matthew 10, Jesus said, You'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. That's suffering, right? To be dragged before the officials. But He says... When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say or what you, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. So when you're persecuted, you get the opportunity to see how He will provide, how He will grant you the ability to respond in a way that points to Christ. And in fact, Jesus even says in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So if they speak ill of you or harm you when you strive to do good to them, don't sweat it. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, says the apostle. Because you are serving the Lord, and he sees, and he hears your prayer, and he will hold them to account, or he will use your suffering in the name of Christ to draw them to himself. But one way or another, he'll handle that. You just keep your eyes on the Lord. You just keep doing what he calls you to do. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. That's the start of verse 15. And that's the start of the heart of our text. There we learn that a life focused on Christ, it involves not only imitating Christ regardless of the cost, but also confessing Christ with humble confidence. Confessing Christ is something every one of us is called to do. Now I know that's hard for some of you to consider. Some of you tremble at the very idea of standing before a few people and talking about your faith. You'd rather do just about anything. But you know, it's not like climbing a ladder to a high dive for someone who's afraid of heights. When you, when you do that, you know, when I, when I was a little kid, I used to be terrified of heights. And my dad was an electrician and he was determined that that was not going to continue. So uh, he would set up a ladder against the, the garage, two-story garage, and, and he would invent some sort of chore that we needed to do up there. And he would force me up that ladder, and that's dread. Every step is worse. And the step beyond that is even worse than that. It's hard. 
and you're, you've constantly got that fear ahead of you. Confessing Christ is not like that. You don't prepare to confess Christ by standing in front of a bunch of people and confessing. That's not how you prepare for it. You prepare to confess Christ by sanctifying Christ as Lord, by holding Him in your heart as holy. Now, when God sanctifies us, He makes us holy. He sets us apart from other sinners. He causes us to be uniquely devoted to Him. But when we hold Christ as holy in our hearts, we're acknowledging what He already is, right? He already is perfectly holy. We're simply recognizing His holiness, recognizing His perfection, and resolving anew to treat Him as He is. So in the midst of a sinful world, as we pursue what is good and the world hates us, we respond by not focusing on them and what they say and what they do, but by focusing on Him. Remember how holy Christ is. Remember how He responded to a world that hated Him. Remember how He loved those who persecuted Him and prayed for those who were crucifying Him. And strive to follow Him. More than that. Remember how He lived the perfect life for those who were living a rebellious life. Remember how He came to suffer and to die the most unimaginable agony for those who were His enemies. Keep your eyes on Him. And the things that you're suffering? Ooh, they said something bad about me. Ooh, they threatened my job. So what? It starts to pale into insignificance as you see the, the weightiness of what the Lord did for you and of how perfect Christ is and is for you. And if you keep your eyes on Him, that will change Everything. That'll change the way you behave toward them. That'll change the way you think toward them. That'll change your desires with regard to those who are... Because you start to pity them. You see that they're living for the moment. They're living for themselves. They're entrusting themselves to themselves. They have no hope. And instead of hating them, instead of wanting to attack them, you grieve for them. One day they're going to stand before the judge and they have no leg to stand on. And you grieve for them. And that's going to confuse them. I've been slandering him and he's blessing me in response. I've been trying to undermine him and he does something nice for me. Now some of them are going to hate you and they're going to redouble their efforts to persecute you. That's okay. That's on them. But others are going to ask you for the reason for the hope that is within you. They're going to ask you what in the world is wrong with you. And that's when we confess. In your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. A defense. The Greek word there indicates the argument that one makes in a court of law to explain his actions, to explain why he is not guilty. In other words, it's a logical response by which we seek to explain why we act in certain ways, why we believe certain things, why we trust the God who saves us. 
For Christians, this is to be the response that we bring when folks ask about the differences that set us apart. Why do you love when I would hate? Why do you refrain from sins that I embrace? Why do you rejoice in the midst of trying circumstances? Why do you endure this pain and injustice and even death without getting bent out of shape? When they see those things, they'll want to know why. And we answer with a defense of the Christian faith. That sounds a lot harder than it is. I've heard so many people say, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a pastor. I don't know how to do that. Sure you do. Every one of our children is taught the catechism. Starting in fifth grade. Taught the Bible before that. And the the lesson of the catechism. I mean there's a lot of really great lessons in the catechism. And the confession and the canons of Dort. But it heart they're really simple my comfort is that I belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful savior Jesus Christ how do you come to know how do you come to live and die in the joy of that comfort three things every one of you high schoolers better know this one right how do you come to live and die in the joy of this comfort three things sin salvation service guilt grace gratitude that's your confession Right? You tell them, I'm a sinner. There is nothing in me that makes me worthy before God. I deserve His wrath. I deserve His condemnation. But He, in love, sent His Son to die for me. When I was still His enemy. He, in love, sent His Son to not only die, but to live the perfect life. To die as the perfect sacrifice and to rise up triumphant over death. And if I trust in him, all I've got to do is trust in him and it's all mine. He looks at me and he sees the righteousness of Jesus. He looks at me and he sees that the the penalty for my sin has been paid. He looks at me and he sees his son. And so now I try to live in a way that shows my gratitude. There's your defense. Now, there's a lot more that you can say. And when that time comes, the Holy Spirit will guide you in saying it. There's a lot of scripture that you could quote. And if you're praying and you're preparing, then you'll be able to quote it. But your calling today is to prepare for that day. First of all, by setting your heart on Christ, by holding Him as holy. And secondly, by being catechized. By doing the things that our catechism classes encourage. Which is to say spending time in God's word. You won't recall what you've never read, right? So spend time reading God's word. Adults, this is not just for the children, right? We all, we need to be setting an example for them. Starting our day with God's word. Starting our day with prayer, Right? If we're saturating ourselves in God's word, if we're constantly on our knees praying for God's help, praising Him for His goodness, then when that moment comes and they say, why are you so different? What is this hope that I see within you? Your natural instinct is going to be to pray. 
to ask God for the help that you need. And then you're going to start, by the power of the Spirit, drawing forth all of those passages that you've read so that you can explain sin and salvation and service, guilt and grace and gratitude in a way that is rooted in God's Word. And when you do it, do it with humble boldness. You hear that? Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Gentleness is hard. Because when they ask us about our hope, we tend to get defensive and we tend to get nervous. And so we want to be kind of forceful and we're anticipating their objections. Don't do that. Don't do that. You can't convince them. You can't change their heart and it's not your job to try. Your job is to tell them the truth. God's the only one that can change their heart. Right? So show them the character of God. Show them the character of Christ. And let Him do the heavy lifting. You speak the truth. Let Him apply it to their heart. With gentleness and, our translation says, respect. The word in Greek is fear. Phobos. We don't fear men, we fear the Lord. So when you confess the Lord, you do it with gentleness toward men and with fear toward the Lord. In other words, you're trusting Him to do what only He can do. Trusting Him to apply it to their hearts. Trusting Him to change them, to make that message not just acceptable to them, but delightful. If you're living for Christ, if you're loving the Lord and delighting in what He has done for you, then you will long to confess to your neighbors with that humble boldness the gospel that saves them. And meanwhile, through the holiness that we embrace, we're called to reflect Christ faithful to conscience. That's the last thing we see here. You'll notice that this point is very similar to the first point, which is not accidental. The heart of this passage is that we need to be prepared to make a defense to all who will hear with humble boldness. But in order to do that, we've got to live in a way that makes them want to know. Right? So that means imitating Christ. It means reflecting Christ. Peter calls us to have a good conscience. Conscience, children, do you know what that means? Conscience is that inner voice in you. When you're about to do something that mom and dad said don't do, and there's that little feeling you get inside that says, oh, I shouldn't do this. That's your conscience, right? Don't violate your conscience. There's nothing safe in violating your conscience. Not just because you don't want to get the spanking, but because God has shown you that's wrong, right? He's speaking to you in your conscience. Now, if you ignore your conscience too many times, it stops speaking. It stops telling you that's wrong. So don't do that. Because that conscience is like a fence that stops you from going into a dangerous place. Right? We need to be striving after a good conscience. Now, the more we read God's Word, the more we study what delights Him and what he hates, the more finely tuned our conscience will be. If you're doing something, here's a good test, young people. If you're about to do something, ask, can I say thanks to God for this? If it's sinful and you know it's sinful, your conscience will not let you say thanks to the Lord for it. And that's good. If you can't praise the Lord, if you can't give Him thanks for what you're about to do, don't do it. Strive instead for a good conscience. Strive to do only that which you can praise the Lord for. 
And if we do that, then those who defame us, says Peter, will be shamed. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. What that means is if you're living according to your conscience, if you're living according to God's word, that that won't stop them from slandering you, from saying bad things about you, from trying to find something to accuse you with. But they're going to sound silly doing it. You're fighting against abortion. And they've got to slander you. They've got to find some way to slander you for protecting babies. Have fun with that. They want to slander you because your your behavior is afflicting their conscience. is showing them what they ought to be doing. But now they've got to find some way to speak ill of you because you're spending time in the nursing home visiting old people. Or because you're spending time building up and strengthening children and young people. Or because you're fostering children who are in need. Or because you're helping folks that are drowning in debt to escape their debt. Or because you're helping build homes for the homeless. Or because you're mediating between people who are estranged. They're still going to speak ill of you, but they're going to look silly doing it. And that's great, because then people will see the emptiness of speaking against Christ and living against Christ. The message here is that how we behave matters. We can serve Satan quite unintentionally by behaving in ways that are proud and self-serving, by speaking harshly and with venom, by embracing or seeking to justify sin, by defending causes that are questionable. When you do those things, you're giving Satan ammunition. You're giving, giving him something to talk about concerning you. And so you're nullifying your witness. I say, yeah, you know, he talks about religion, but you see the way he he talks at work, the language he uses. Or yeah, yeah, she talks about all all this comfort that she gets from her faith, but of course she's also the one that's first to talk about all the bad things people have done. She's the biggest gossip in town. I don't know that you can believe anything she says, right? Or yeah, yeah, she wants you to go to church with her. She won't lift a finger to help you when you're needing something. You see, if we don't strive to live a life that reflects Christ, then our words will mean nothing. Our witness will mean nothing. But if we do what is good, if we reflect Christ, then even when they speak ill of us, it will be a blessing to the Lord. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It may be God's will during a season in your life that you suffer for doing what is right. Certainly that's been His will for many Christians, and we can't know in advance when that might happen. But if we must suffer, let it not be because we did evil, because we rebelled against the Lord, because we embraced a sin that can't be defended, because we... we, dove into our worldly passions. Far rather, let us suffer for doing what is good, for focusing on the Lord, for pointing people to Him. Let us suffer along with Christ, bearing His cross, enduring His shame, because then we gain opportunity anew, even in the midst of our suffering, to point people to Christ, to say, there's where our hope is found, there's where our life is found, there's where our treasure is stored up. My friends, you may well be called upon to suffer 
as you serve the Lord in this broken world. Or you may not suffer in a significant way. That's in the hands of God. But either way, your calling is to prepare by living a life that is focused in all things on Christ. This we do by imitating Christ regardless of the cost. This we do by reflecting Christ, faithful to our conscience. And as we do that, God will give us the opportunity to confess Christ with humble confidence. May God use us to that end. And even though we're weak, even though we're small, may He make us instruments by which He turns the hearts of His people. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are not sufficient for these things. We know how readily we embrace sin. We know how hard it is to confess Christ and how, how quick we sometimes are to pass by the opportunity. But we know that nothing is too hard for you. And that you delight to take those who are weak in the eyes of the world and those who are foolish in the eyes of men and use them to do amazing things. And so we pray that you would prepare us that you would use us as instruments in your hand to reveal the character of Christ and to declare the gospel of Christ for those who desperately need to hear. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. In response, we're going to sing together a hymn that, uh, that reminds us that we're often living in the midst of a storm. But the Lord wants us to keep our focus on Him, serving Him, regardless of what's happening around us. This is number 459. Jesus calls us, or the